let's pray together. Jesus, we are so grateful, so thankful. We stand in awe of who you are and of what you've accomplished in our lives. And God, we're just grateful to be in your house this morning. We're grateful to gather together with the people of God to lift up the name of God. And Jesus, we just pray that as we spend time opening your word, that you would open your mouth. God, we just want you to speak to us. We wanna leave here seeing you different, seeing our lives different. We wanna leave here walking in freedom that we never dreamed was possible, experiencing a connection with you that we didn't know that we could have. And so God, I just pray that in this next few moments that we have together, that you would do just the miraculous, that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe. And Jesus, I just pray that we would leave changed and that you would get all of the glory. And we ask it in your beautiful name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Well, good morning, Stone Creek. Man, I'm so glad that you guys are here. Did y'all have a good Thanksgiving? Was it good? Awesome. On the count of three, shout out your favorite Thanksgiving food that you consumed and feel way too fat from consuming. One, two, three. Love it, man. Love it. Um, I don't know about you, if you have any weird, strange family traditions around the holidays, um, being that we're from the South, there's no telling what kind of weird redneck traditions you and your Alabama cousins have, you know? Um, there's just no telling. Um, like for me, I don't really have any crazy traditions. My, my, my Thanksgiving was pretty low key, pretty chill. But um, I heard about somebody this week who um, they have a Thanksgiving tradition of playing backyard football with a raw turkey the day before Thanksgiving. Like, ew, right? Am I like gross? Um, they tried to tell me, he tried to tell me that it, um, that it adds flavor and makes the turkey tender. I told Pastor Stephen, it's just gross. Like it's just unsanitary. I'm just kidding. He doesn't really do that. He is from Mississippi, but he doesn't do that. Okay. No, I don't have any weird family traditions, but the one tradition that we do have is that my uncle fries a turkey that will make you want to slap your grandma. Have you ever had fried turkey? Like it will make you want to start singing praise songs to Jesus. Like just like have a church service, praise him from whom all dressing flows. Y'all, that's good. Like if I sing, y'all should clap and maybe dance, okay? Like it was so good. I love that turkey. Um, but other than that, the only Thanksgiving tradition that we have, I think like everybody has, we go around the table and we say what we're thankful for before the meal. Any of y'all do that? Any of y'all do that? I think you like do that and eat gravy in order to be an American, okay? Like... It's kind of essential, it's Thanksgiving people, come on. So we go around the table every year and we say that we're thankful for, but for whatever reason, this year, it just hit me different. Like I've done it every year, as long as I can remember, like I was going around saying what I was thankful for, like as a fetus, okay? And so for a long time, we've had this tradition, but for whatever reason, this year, it just kind of stopped me in my tracks and it got me thinking about gratitude. It got me thinking about thankfulness and the role that thankfulness and gratitude play in our human experience and existence. Did you know that like nobody can make you grateful? Like I can tell you right now, be grateful and it wouldn't make you grateful. Like you remember when your mom tried to do that when you were a kid? Like maybe like, was I the only mom with a backbone here? Okay, all right. So maybe you would like have something on your plate that you didn't wanna eat and your mom would be, like, be grateful. Well, you better be grateful that you got food on your plate. Or, or like you wouldn't get the bike that you wanted for Christmas, but your neighbor would. And so you'd be all jealous and envious and like pouting. And your mom would be like, well, you better be grateful. I'm gonna take all your presents back, right? Like be grateful. And what it did when your parents told you to be grateful as a kid, as a 12-year-old boy, just in your heart, it immediately produced gratitude, didn't it? You were just like, you know what, mom? You're right. Like now that I stop and I think about it and I ponder, 
Like, I'm so grateful. You've done so much for me. You and dad work so hard. You're so benevolent, so kind. You carry me so much stress for our family. Like, I just can't imagine all the sacrifices you make. Like, you know, I could be living in a hut in Africa or from Mississippi. So I am, I'm just grateful. No, that's not what it does, right? Like telling someone to be grateful doesn't automatically generate gratitude. There's no like thankfulness potion. There's not like a grenade that I can drop, boom, gratefulness. That's not the way that it works. Gratefulness, gratitude is, is brought forth from perspective. You've got to see things different to be grateful. Like, like if I told you be grateful for your job, you wouldn't be grateful for your job, you would be like, bro, you haven't met my boss, okay, hello. Like he worships the devil and cheers for the saints. Um, and I don't know which one's worse. Like I'm not, I, I can't just be grateful because you tell me to, I've got to have perspective. In order, you see, gratitude is generated from perspective. You got to see things different. You got to look at it from a different angle. You've got to cl clear your eyes, look at it through a different set of lenses, get in a different position to see things from a different perspective for gratitude to be generated. Like none of you woke up this morning just grateful for your health. But if you get sick, all of a sudden you're real grateful for your health. Like any, any man in the room, when you get sick, you turn into a man child. Like I turn into a 195 pound baby when I get like a cold, okay? I'm like crying, can't get out of bed, need her to give me chicken soup through my veins, right? Like I just turn into a child when I get sick and all of a sudden, because I'm sick, I've got the perspective to be really grateful for being healthy. Like none of y'all probably woke up this morning, you're just like grateful that you're a walker, like grateful that you can put one foot in front of the other. Like none of you woke up really grateful for that this morning. None of you were like, I'm so grateful that I got like dance moves, right? Nobody woke up grateful, but if you sprained your ankle, all of a sudden you would be grateful, that rhymed. Okay, all right, so that's the way that gratitude works is you get some perspective and it makes you grateful. Like you're not grateful for your car right now, maybe. You're like, it's busted up, it's ghetto, it's toe up from the flow up, it is a beater, like my car is terrible, I don't like it at all. But if you hop on an airplane, you go to Guatemala and you come back, all of a sudden you're praising Jesus for the Prius, right? It's like, Jesus, I praise you for my go-kart Prius that is battery operated that steals my man card. Like I love the Prius, because you got a little bit of perspective. You see gratitude, gratefulness, thankfulness is generated when we get perspective. If you see things differently, all of a sudden it generates gratitude. And so let me ask you this question. How grateful are you for the cross of Jesus? Like we just sang some songs about it, but like how truly, how really, how deeply, how emotionally and intellectually does the cross of Jesus move you? Are you actually grateful for it? Like, I, I just, I, does it move you? Does it captivate you? Does it, does it grab a hold of your heart? How grateful, how much thankfulness do you have for the cross of Christ? I remember, just wanna be real with you this morning, the first time that we sang that song earlier that we sang hallelujah for the cross, as a church, there was this like emotion that welled up in me when I kind of looked at our response to that song that made me want to stand on my chair and scream, be more grateful. Like that's how I felt. I wanted to just get up and scream like, do you not know that he died? That like he really died. Like that's not just a song. It's not a slogan. It's not a cheer. It's not cute. He died. God died for you and me. Like I wanted to do that, but I know it just like stresses you out. It doesn't make you grateful, right? You just feel awkward. Like, why is he yelling? 
But that was the emotion that I had because I'm thinking about what the cross has done for us and I don't think that we're as grateful as maybe we should be. And so let me just get my cards out on the table early. I wanna spend the next four and a half hours that we have together (laughs) just looking at the cross of Jesus like a diamond. I wanna look at it from every angle, every perspective. I wanna turn it and just look at it inside and out and try to pull out all of its worth. I I wanna look at the cross of Jesus in a way that it produces praise, in a way that it triggers thankfulness and generates gratitude and pulls you closer to the heart of Jesus than you have ever been in your entire life. I want for you to leave walking out of today knowing that you are more loved because of the cross than you could ever imagine. I want for it to push you out today to speak with more boldness about what Jesus has done than you've ever dared to dream. Can I get an amen this morning? I'm preaching way better than you're responding right now. Like like this morning, I'm gonna need all your help because I wanna put on display for you the infinite worth of the cross of Jesus. And so, man, it's, it's emotional and it's heavy and it's difficult and it's daunting, but it's so unbelievably significant. So give me all the help you can. Like I'll preach better if you'll, if you'll preach back to me, okay? Feel free to be like, hey man, yeah, come on, preach it white boy. Like whatever <laughs> you wanna say, just throw it my way, okay? Because... I want to rip this stage apart to try to show you the significance of the cross. And I want for you to walk out the door believing that it's got more power than you ever dared to dream. The cross is so unbelievably significant, but it is so easy for us to become inoculated to the cross in our life. So easy for the cross to just become numb to us. Now, when I talk about the cross this morning, I just wanna say that when I say cross, I'm referring to the cross of Jesus, the fact that he died on the cross, and I'm referring to the resurrection of Jesus, both of those things together when I say the cross. The apostle Paul says that if we boast in Christ only for this age, if he didn't rise from the dead, then we as Christians are the worst to be pitied and we've wasted our lives. Because without Christ dying on the cross and raising from the dead, we're still in our sins and we're not set free. But because if Jesus died on the cross, and if Jesus rose again from the dead, then it is the most significant event in human history, and it changes everything. And so I'm talking about the cross and the resurrection this morning as one combined event, and it's so easy for us to become numb to it, so easy for us to become inoculated to it, so easy for it to just become this thing in the rearview mirror of our faith, in the background of our lives, but, but it should be more prominent. Now, we know this, that the cross is the most prominent and demonstrative symbol of our faith. It stands out as the kind of symbol of Christianity, and rightly so, but it wasn't always that way. In the Old Testament, there was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Let me hear you say Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, and the Ark of the Covenant, um, the Ark of the Covenant was the place that God's presence dwelled on earth. And when the Hebrew nation, the Israelite people were a nomadic people, the Ark of the Covenant would go before them. Wherever the Ark went, they went. And when they finally came into the promised land and had a place to call home, they built a temple. And within that temple, they built a sacred space space, space, called the Holy of Holies. Let me hear you say Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant rested. And there was a curtain that divided, that separated the Ark of the Covenant from everyone else because it was so significant and it stood as the symbol of the faith of the people of God. 
But then in the first century, for the first century Christians, it wasn't the Ark of the Covenant, it was a fish. How many of you have ever seen the Christian fish on the back of a car? Yeah, I can't, drive, I can't have that because I don't drive like a Christian, hello. But the Christian fish, it was used as a prominent symbol for Christians in the first century. You see, it was a covert sign for Christians who were fearing persecution. And so if you were meeting another Christian in a part of town, you would have this fish as a symbol to identify that you were both Christians without anybody being able to know because you were in fear for your faith. It was the most prominent symbol for the first century Christians. But it didn't take long for Christians to get removed from the story of Jesus, to look back on that story and to make a determination about what should stand at the center of our faith. And they chose the cross, and rightly so. And now the cross is everywhere when it pertains to Christianity. It stands out as the symbol of followers of Jesus. It's the cross, it's everywhere, right? The cross now shows up in architecture, it's on buildings, it's on the steeple on the top of churches. It shows up in art, it is painted and drawn We use the cross as jewelry around our necks. It is ornately and beautifully designed, custom crafted. And if you grew up in a Southern Baptist church in the 90s, you may have a cross tattoo that your mommy doesn't know about, right? Like the the cross is everywhere. It is so prominent, so significant. It stands as this symbol of our faith. But if we're not careful, this symbol can lose its significance we can turn this instrument of torture into something that's just jewelry. But it's so much more than that. For the believer, for the Christian, there is power in the cross. There's otherworldly significance that's found in the cross of Jesus, significance that you can't even begin to imagine if you don't know Jesus. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians says it like this. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, like if you're a skeptic, if you're a doubter, maybe you're from a different faith, you're checking this thing out. This is what I know is the cross is likely folly to you. It's a relic. It's distant. It's a fairy tale. It's got no meaning. It's foolishness. But if you are a follower of Jesus, but but, by the way, if you're here and you're checking this out, I'm so glad that you're here. I hope you'll see that the cross can change everything about you. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I want for you to know that we believe that it's got otherworldly power, otherworldly significance. This is what you gotta know, Christian, is that there's no power in your life apart from the cross. No power, no power in Christianity apart from the cross of Jesus. There's no power for healing. There's no power for prayer. There's no power for friendship. There's no power for mission, no power for movement, no power for life without the cross of Christ. All of the power of Christianity happens in the cross of Christ. You know, the Bible says it like this, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that took Jesus from being crucified on the cross to raising him again from the dead, that power for those who believe, that's alive in us. What? Are you kidding me? Are you, like, is that... The power of the cross is now alive in us. All the power of Christianity rests in the cross of Christ. Now, now why? Why is power found in the cross of Christ? Why does the cross equal power? Well, the cross equals power because the cross equals forgiveness. The cross is the way that we are able to be forgiven of our sin. 
Now you may go like, well, well, what's sin? What is like, what is that? What's sin? Well, sin is rebellion against God. Sin is anything that you think, say, or do that breaks God's commands and it breaks God's heart. Okay, anytime you think something, say something, do something that goes against God's command, that's sin and it breaks God's heart and it causes separation, separation to the point of death. You see, our sin puts us in a hopeless place, in a helpless place, not in a bad place, not in a dark place, not in a gloomy place, not in a difficult place. It puts us in a dead place. The writer of Ephesians says it like this, you are dead in trespasses and sins. You see, sometimes in life, we feel like we're just down in the dumps. We're just wallowing. Like we're drowning and we need somebody to throw us a life preserver. That, that we were drowning in the ocean, but that Jesus in his grace threw us a life preserver and rescued us. That is an incorrect picture of the gospel. A right picture of the gospel is that you've drowned, you've sunk, you're under the sand, your floaties has sunk to the surface and you're, you're dead. It's over. Bye. For sayonara. The end. But that when you were dead, Jesus came on the cross to forgive you of your sins, to make you alive. And let me just be real, like just super real with you this morning. Sin, like your sin, my sin is terrible. It is dirty. It is preposterous. It is an attack on God's character. It is wickedness that we could not begin to imagine each and every one of us are sinners. The Bible says in Romans chapter three that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us get off scoff clean. And like that should have come as a shocker to any of us, right? Like nobody should be like, man, I'm a sinner. Who knew, right? Like raise your hand if you've got issues this morning. Raise your hand if you got issues, okay? Okay, if your hand's not up, your issue is you don't think you have issues, okay? Like <laughs> we all are a work in progress. None of us are perfect. We're all in process. Like nobody's got this whole thing together. We've all got issues, okay? And you were born like this, you can't help it, okay? Like you can't help it. You were born into sin. You were born rebelling against God. So I've got this little girl, she's two. Her name is Raleigh Ray McLaughlin and she is the cutest little girl on the planet. Hello, okay? Like I love that girl. And like she came out the womb and I was like, I made that dung, right? Like just so pumped. And like, she didn't even do anything. Like she just sat there and pooped and like ate and cried. And I was like, holla back girl. Like I... <laughs> love you, okay? Like, I just loved her. She's amazing. She's terrific. But then she turned two, <laughs> and she learned this word. Do you know the word that she learned? No, she learned mine, okay? <laughs> I wish she just learned no. So now, like, my little girl, Riley, she's got this cute little drafty. It's her passy. She calls it her E. She can have it till she's 18. I don't care. Judge me, okay? <laughs> and uh, she, all the time, she'll, like, come downstairs. She'll go, my E, my E. It's her drafty, right? I'm like, yeah, that's yours. But then she'll, 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 like, come up to, you know, our dog, Ziggy. She'll be like, my Iggy, my Iggy. This is my Iggy. And, and she'll, like, come up to the couch. She'll be like, my seat, my seat. This is my seat. And I'm like, I, I don't know, girl. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. She'll be like, at her high chair, she'll be like, my my chair, my chair. She'll like go to the pantry and like my food, my food, my food. She'll like grab my wife, my mommy, my mommy, my mommy. And sometimes I'm just like, girl, like I, I paid for all of this stuff in this house. Like you don't have a job. I mar I put a ring on that finger. She is mine, okay? Like I don't know what you're talking about, mine. Like where did my daughter learn mine? Like where did she learn that? Like, it's not like Kayla and I are sitting on the couch, you know, watching TV and all of a sudden I'm like, grab the remote, mine, I'm watching football, right? 
Like, I don't do that except for when she watches The Bachelor, okay? Like, like, where did my girl learn this? She didn't learn this. We're just, it's our nature. We have this tendency, this propensity, this drift in us towards sin. We can't help it. We're sinners and it puts us in this really dark place. And it's dark, it's awkward to even talk about sin. Like you feel it right now. There's this level of thickness, of heaviness because I called you a sinner. Like you feel it. Like, and, and, and there's this belief that, nobody can tell you what's right or wrong. And so like, you've almost got this like arrogance because I even told you that you were a sinner. And then, and then there's this fear, like so few people talk about sin now for fear of sounding judgmental. Have you ever felt that way? You ever thought that? You ever been like, man, I don't wanna talk about sin because I'm gonna come across as judgmental. I felt that way. I feel that way right now. I feel you feeling like I'm judgmental because I'm talking about sin. Do you feel that? I feel that. There's this feeling of judgmentalness. There's this fear that we're gonna sound judgmental so we don't talk about sin. But do you know what I'm more afraid of? I'm more afraid of when you have to stand before the actual judge and you've gotta give an account for the things that you've done and you don't have an advocate named Jesus who died so that he could stand in your place as your advocate. That's what I'm afraid of. I'm more afraid of that than hurting your feelings or sounding judgmental. And do you know what I'm also afraid of? And you should be too. I'm afraid of when I have to stand before the judge and give an account for the things that I've done and my reasoning, my rationale for why I didn't tell more people about what Jesus had done on the cross is because I was afraid of what they were gonna think or that I was gonna hurt their feelings. There should be no excuse for why we don't tell people about what Jesus has done for them. And so we've got to talk about sin this morning because until we see the severity of our sin, we're never going to see the significance of the cross of Jesus. We're never going to. Now, here's what I want you to know is I don't want you to feel condemned. I don't want you to feel judged. I don't want you to feel guilty. The, the, the writer of Romans says that it's actually God's kindness that leads us towards repentance. It's God's love and grace and mercy that draws us towards him. But I love the way that John Stott, or yeah, John Stott, the writer and theologian and pastor says it. He says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, We have to see it as done something by us. Jesus dies on the cross because you and I are sinners, because we sinned against the holy God of the universe and there is a price that must be paid. I don't know why God set it up this way. I don't. But from the very beginning, he said the wages, the payment of sin is death. If you disobey, you will surely die. And then the whole sacrificial system gets set up and animals are killed, lambs are slaughtered to pay for sins. There's this connection between blood and forgiveness that is inseparable all throughout the pages of the Bible. If you read this thing, it is covered in blood, dripping in blood, a life for a life. That's the way that God set it up. And that is what the cross of Jesus is all about. It is about sacrifice. It is about bloodshed. It is about somebody standing in somebody else's place for the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians says it like this. (laughs) In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, Jesus's blood poured out for you and me. 
That's what's going on on the cross. He's dying, bleeding painfully so that you and I could have life. It's a life for a life. It's this beautiful thing that the cross of Jesus brings you and I forgiveness of sins. We've got no power to rescue ourselves, no power to save ourselves, no power to heal ourselves, no power to be good enough, no power to do the right thing, no power to keep the law, no power to right what's been wronged, no power. All the power is in the cross of Jesus when his blood is shed so that you and I could be forgiven. That is the power of the cross of Jesus. And until we see this power, until we see this forgiveness, we're never gonna see the cross in all of its fullness. But the cross is about so much more than forgiveness. The cross is about freedom. You see, Jesus doesn't just forgive you from your sins, he also sets you free from your sins. He doesn't just forgive you, but he also sets you free. It's not just like, all right, you know, our argument's over. The, 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 the debt's been paid. Things are settled. You're off the hook. I'm not upset with you anymore. No, no, he also sets you free from sin. This is what you've got to know about sin is that sin is slavery. Sin is slavery. I don't know if you've ever felt this before, but sin has this tendency to get its hooks in you, to get its teeth in you, and to never let you go. Sin is bondage. Sin is a trap. Sin is addictive. Sin is compulsive. Sin is uh, unending. Like, you can't escape it. And and you've experienced this before, right? Like, how many times have you gone, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going back there again. I'm never looking at that internet site again. I'm never cheating on my taxes again. I'm never talking to her again. I'm never going to that place again. I'm never gonna say that again. I'm never gonna lose my temper again. I'm never gonna drink again. How many times have there been? I'm never gonna again, only to again. Because sin is slavery. You just can't help yourself. And the Bible would say that even the good things that we try to do, even our acts of good are sin. They're colored by sin, covered by sin. It says that your acts of righteousness are as unto filthy rags unto the Lord. So like your good things, your good deeds, they're colored, they're covered by sin. They're still sin because there's pride and arrogance and a debt to be paid that's wrapped up in it. Like think about it like this, okay? The way that everything that you do is colored by sin. Uh, um, Imagine that like I um, loaned you money. Okay, like, uh, let's make this more real. Imagine you loaned your brother money. Maybe this is a true story, who knows? Okay, so imagine you loaned your brother money, okay? And your brother didn't pay you back that money. But what your brother did is he bought his girlfriend a diamond ring. Would you see your brother buying his girlfriend a diamond ring as like something good, something great? Like, hooray that she got a diamond ring. Like, I'm so glad that he was able to buy a diamond ring for her, that she has a diamond ring. Is that how you'd see it? No, you would see that as your diamond ring, right? Like, I bought that diamond ring, right? And that's exactly the way that God sees everything that we do as good apart from the cross of Christ. It's still sin. We're in slavery to it because we owe him. We haven't paid him back. And so until we receive forgiveness, all we do is sin. We're enchained to sin. You feel this. You know this. You've got things playing in your mind right now, sinful patterns, sinful behaviors, addictive tendencies that you are trapped in and cannot escape. But I'm here to tell you this morning that for the first time in your life, When you receive the power of the cross, you are able to look sin square in the face and say, you have no hold on me. You have no hold on me. Romans chapter six says it like this, okay? Yeah, y'all cheer, come on, praise God. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Imagine sin being nothing in your life. What in the world? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. So I don't know about you, but like I can look in my past as far back as it goes and I can see generational sin, slavery to sin, patterns of sin, tendencies of sin that just mar my family. So it doesn't matter how far back you look on the McLaughlin side of my family. All that there is is divorce, ravage, and chaos. Divorce after divorce after divorce, affair after affair after affair, marital brokenness, family in shambles, dads full of anger. As far back as you go, McLaughlin men get divorced. They're enslaved to it. It dominates my family. But I'm here to tell you this morning that because of the power of the cross of Jesus and the freedom that it brings, divorce ends with me, okay? Like, I'm not enchained to it anymore. And like, I can stand here and boldly say that because I feel the freedom that the cross has brought, like, and it's available to you. Like, what if you could experience freedom? Like, think about your addictions. Man, think about the secrets Think about the lies. Think about the places in your life that you're held hostage. The things that you just, you're trying so hard. You got your four-step plan. You read the latest book. You got self-help and it didn't help. What if you could be set free? What if freedom was possible? What if freedom could reign? What if you could look sin square in the face and say, you will not hold me anymore? I'm not telling you that sin is never going to creep back up and that it's not gonna win sometimes, but before, until you receive the freedom of the cross of Jesus, you don't even got a shot. It's all sin. You're handed over to it every time. You can't help yourself, but with the power of the cross of Jesus, you can look depression in the eyes. You can look anxiety in the eyes. You can look shame in the eyes. You can look brokenness in the eyes. You can look racism in the eyes and you can say, I am free from all of that. I will leave that baggage behind. That is the power that the cross of Jesus brings. It brings forgiveness the cross brings freedom, but it's so much more than that. Now, I told some of my friends that I was going to do this, and they just laughed at me, okay? So um, when I got saved, I was just like a nerd. Like, I read big, fat theology books. I just, like, loved it, would just nerd out for hours on end. I would just, like, want to get in spiritual debates with people and talk about these really lofty ideas that nobody cared about, like, you know, just, just crazy things like predestination, okay? It's an awkward topic for our high school students, okay? So, but so, like, that's... That's what I would do. I just like loved it, okay? And, and to be real, like I don't care as much about you knowing high level theology now as I used to, but as it pertains to the cross, I've got this conviction that you would know what's happening when Jesus dies. There are all these words that are throughout the Bible that you'll see as you read that are explaining and trying to capture the fullness of what accomplishes on the cross. And I just wanna be like nerdy, fulfill some of my nerdiness right now by having you guys letting y'all in on some of these words and explaining them to you. I told my friends, they're gonna judge me when they watch this video. It's gonna be awesome, okay? So um, this, is what, this is what I want to do is I wanna introduce you to some of these theological words, okay? Y'all cool with that? Yeah. All right, so here's the first one is the cross equals atonement. Let me hear you say atonement. I feel so good on the inside. Okay. All right. So atonement, right? Atonement means at one mint. That on the cross of Jesus, what happens when he dies is he makes peace, allowing us to be at one with God. How good is that? That once upon a time we were with God, but our sin separated us from God. But because the cross of Jesus, we are, be, we are able to be brought back at one with God. 
that peace has been made so that we can be in his family again. The cross equals atonement. How good is that? But it equals more than atonement. The cross equals expiation. Let me hear you say expiation. I love it, I love it. Okay, so expiation is this, okay? Expiation is the removal of guilt and shame. That on the cross of Jesus, what he does is he expiates, he cancels, he removes your guilt and your shame. How good would it feel to not feel guilty? Like, think about that. How, like, to not feel guilty, like earlier when I was talking about sin, all those emotions that were running through your mind, all of those insecurities and inadequacies and reminders of failure, of feeling like you've blown it. Like, what if you didn't have to feel guilty for that affair? What if you didn't have to feel guilty for your past? What if you didn't have to feel guilty for you fill in the blank? What if that didn't have to dominate your emotion? Expiation is the truth that the cross of Jesus, it doesn't just forgive you, it removes you, cleanses you, takes all the guilt away. It's no longer on you. That's good news that the guilt is expiated, but it's so much more than expiation, it's propitiation. Let me hear you say propitiation. Propitiation. (sighs) So good. Propitiation is that on the cross of Jesus, Jesus doesn't just cancel your guilt. He also removes the wrath of God from you. That's propitiation. That not only is your guilt removed, not only is your sin removed, but but God's wrath is removed. God's wrath was coming towards you and me at a million miles an hour, and it was more than we could possibly handle. It was all of his rage, all of his anger, all of his righteous fury, all of his just punishment for what we had done wrong. It was headed towards us. And on the cross of Jesus, Jesus takes the cup of God's wrath. He drinks every last drop. He slams it down and he says, it is finished. For my people, there is no more wrath. Propitiation is that on the cross of Jesus, he takes on everything that was headed our way. That is good news. That is the power of the cross. But it's more than propitiation. It is reconciliation. Let me hear you say reconciliation. Reconciliation is this idea that we can be brought back to God that we can be reconciled, that everything that was fractured and broken, imagine a glass shattering and going into a million people's pieces. God reconciles it on the cross. He brings everything back together. The fullness of creation is brought back together in the cross. So broken marriages are brought back together in the cross. Broken hearts are brought back together in the cross. Disappointed dreams are brought back together in the cross. All of your shame, everything that was broken is made whole. All the parts of you that feel missing, where you feel like you don't measure up, where where there's something in you that's unsatisfied, it is reconciled, brought back together in the cross. But it's more than reconciliation, it's imputation. Let me hear you say imputation. 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 You'll see this word in the Bible, and this may be my favorite one. This may be the best one. This is insane. This is just ridiculous. On the cross of Jesus, when Jesus dies on the cross, What he does is he looks at his father in heaven and he says, all of the sin, the sin that you've committed and the sin that I've committed, the sins that you know about and that I know about and the sins that nobody knows about, the skeletons in our closet and the things that are on front and center stage for everyone to see, Jesus looks at his father in heaven and he goes, all of the sin, all of the things that you said, did, and thought that broke God's commands and broke God's heart. God, I want for you to know they didn't do that. I did. God imputes to Jesus our sin. He takes it on. He goes, I did it. I cheated. I lied. I stole. I was angry. I was addicted. I fell short. I didn't measure up. I did it. I did it. 
And what he imputes to us is his righteousness. He goes, they did it. They were faithful. They were holy. They were just. They were kind. They were sacrificial. They were loving. They were faithful. They measured up. You get all of Jesus' righteousness? Are you kidding me? Like think about the fact that when God looks at you, when God looks at you, he doesn't see the wrong that you've done, but he sees the shed blood of Jesus washed over you, making you holy and blameless and pure. When, Jesus, when God looks at you, he doesn't see what you've done. He sees what Jesus has done. What? Are you kidding me? He sees me as being faithful. He sees me as being holy. He sees me as walking in kindness. He sees me as fulfilling the great commission. He sees me as bringing the kingdom of God. He sees me as his son and his daughter. It's unreal. The cross brings imputation that Jesus takes on our sin and that we are imputed his righteousness, his right standing with God. But it also brings justification. Let me hear you say justification. Justification is this crazy thing where God is able to remain just and judge at the same time by punishing the innocent to pardon the guilty. Justification happens where now we have right standing. We are justified before a holy God because justice was served on Jesus, the innocent. So now we can go free who were once guilty. It's amazing that we're justified. There's no accusation that can stand. There's no price left to pay. There's no penalty. There's no time out. There's no out of bounds. There's no debt. It's, we're justified. It's done. But the most beautiful part is that this whole act is an act of substitution. Let me hear you say substitution. That Jesus steps in our place, condemned he stood. It should have been your cross. It should have been your crown. It should have been your death and my death. But Jesus said, I've got it. I'll sub in. I'll take your place. I know the clock has hit zero. There's no time. You can't do it. Game over. You failed. You've blown it. You've screwed up. There's no opportunity for success, but I will sub in. I will save the day. I will take your place. This is the glory of the cross. This is the beauty of the cross. This is the theology of the cross. There's so much going on behind the surface. Surface. It's so much more than a historical event. Is it a historical event that Jesus died? Absolutely. But there's so much going on intellectually and theologically. There's so much going on from a cosmic judicial perspective, from a legal perspective when Jesus dies on the cross. I love the way that Colossians puts it. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses passes by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Can we celebrate the truth of what happens on the cross? It's big. What happens on the cross is big, it is vast, it is wide, it is beautiful, it is deep, it is real, it is meaningful, it is so amazing what Jesus accomplishes for us on the cross. It is complicated yet simple. At the end of the day, what happens on the cross is that Jesus dies so that you and I can live. He dies so that you and I can live. And I'll just be real. The life that is found in the cross is the best life of all. I have no idea where I would be without the cross of Jesus. Let me just be real. And when you look at my family, single mom, four marriages, dead-end jobs, 
When you look at my brothers, been drug dealers, been in prison, kids out of wedlock. Man, you look at my life, generation of divorce as far back as the eye can see. There is no reason that I'm not just a bum. No reason. No reason. There's no reason that I'm not arrogant and prideful. There's no reason that I'm not angry and addicted. There is no reason that I'm not an adulterer. There's no reason except for the cross of Jesus. I have no idea what my life would look like. No idea the pain that I'd feel. No idea the pain I would have created, the wake of chaos I would have left behind me. No idea where I would be if it wasn't for that cross where Jesus changes everything about me and he can change everything about you too. But you see, until the theological and the biblical become deeply personal, it's never gonna change you. Until it moves from this abstract intellectual concept that you're thinking about right now in your mind and it gets to your heart and it emotionally evokes something in you where you understand that on the cross of Jesus is the greatest demonstration of his affection that you could possibly imagine and that it's for you, not us, not the ambiguous we, not the world, but you. Until you feel that it's for you, that Jesus died for you, for your sin and your place, because he loved you, it's never gonna change you. Like, I don't know about you, but I love demonstrations. Like, I'm a demonstrative guy. I don't know if you could tell, okay? Like, I love demonstrations, love them. And so when I started dating my, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, Kayla, I was demonstrative. Like when I asked her out the first time, I put poster boards in every class of her high school classroom that called her my bundle of mystical forest with flowers. Why? I don't know. I don't know. I just love demonstrations, right? And so I was just making a big deal. I love you. Here's flowers. You're in my bundle of mystical forest. That's weird. Yeah, okay, I love you. Let's get married, okay? Like that's the way that it went. When, when we got engaged, it was a big demonstration, big demonstration, Okay like massive demonstration. We had this song, the band Perry had all these cute lines, like, would you walk to the edge of the ocean just to fill my jar with sand, just in case I get the notion to let it run through my hand. And so I got 600 jars of sand from the ocean and I filled them up. And then it says, hey, would you catch a couple thousand fireflies and put them in a lamp to light my world? All dressed up in a tux and bow tie, hand delivered to a lonely girl. So guess what? I got a couple thousand fireflies and I put them in mason jars and I put them all around our room. I put jars of sand and mason jars with fireflies and I got a big lantern, filled that thing with fireflies, put the ring in it, went in a tux and a bow tie, got 600 flowers because I called her my bundle of mystical force, put that in her bedroom too. Then I took her out on a date. We went all around to our favorite places that we went in high school. We went to, you know, restaurants and movie theaters. We went to this makeout pavilion that we just danced in, right? And then at the end of the day, I went back to her parents' house and I dropped her off and I said, all right, girl, love you, holler back, see ya. And I got in my car and I drove away. Her parents were in on it. They brought her inside, took her down into the basement. While she was in the basement, I snuck back inside, went upstairs, put on a tux and bow tie. I had the lantern with the fireflies. As soon as she walked in the room, I pressed play on a CD player, because that's how old we are. And the song <laughs> began to play, all dressed up in a tux and bow tie, hand delivered to a lonely girl, and I had this speech that I read to her. I got down on one knee. I asked her to be my wife, and she said yes. I like demonstrations, and y'all should be cheering right now. Come on. I like demonstrations, and then I, I, I washed her feet and said the same way that Jesus served the disciples, I wanna serve you and fight for you and love you and lead you in our marriage. Like I'm committed to you all the days of my life. This is my demonstration of my love for you. You see, I'm like a four on a good day. She's like a 27, okay? And on a scale of 10, like she's just hot, 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 hot. And so I wanted her to know that like, 
I loved her, was crazy about her, head over heels committed to her, that this was me demonstrating in all of my creativity and all of my wisdom how much I loved her, that this is what I had for her, that this is how big my love, how drastic my love, dramatic my love was for her. Do you know God's demonstration for you? Do you wanna know how he demonstrates how much he loves you, how crazy about you he is? The cross of Christ. Romans says it like this in Romans 5, 8, maybe my favorite verse in the entire Bible. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross of Christ is the greatest demonstration of love that the world has ever known, period, period, period. Jesus, God, in all of his brilliance, in all of his humanity, in all of his wisdom goes, you wanna know how much I love you? Let me die for you. Let me show you my demonstration by crucifixion and you might not feel the gratitude that you're supposed to feel when it comes to the cross of Christ. Don't leave yet because you don't understand crucifixion. You know, crucifixion is the most violent, painful, brutal, sadistic form of capital punishment that has ever existed on planet earth. It was so barbaric that the ancient philosophers would say it is the most wretched way to die, end quote. The Greek philosopher Cicero said that it was unright, unfit for Roman citizens to even think or speak about crucifixion for it was far too evil a way to die. It was as if the person who was crucified was accursed of God. There was a word that was produced to describe the pain and the agony of crucifixion, literally derived from the experience. And it's the word excruciating, literally meaning from the cross. From the cross equals pain. From the cross equals sacrifice. From the cross equals brutality. The way that crucifixion would work is that obviously you would be nailed to a tree, but you would be slouched over in such a way that your lungs don't have the capacity to get air. And so as you're hanging on the cross, the only way for you to breathe is to take your beaten body that is nailed to a tree and pull it up to get a gasp of breath. Inhale. And then let it down just to exhale. This was the most shameful and painful way to die. And victims would hang there for hours, sometimes even days until they would eventually suffocate. They would suffer death by asphyxiation. It would take so long that they would hang there as the sun beat down on their battered skin, causing burning. They would hang there through the cool of the night and freeze to death to the point of causing chills that would begin to make them convulse. A victim of crucifixion would go in and out of consciousness over and over and over again. It would cause a sense of dizziness and confusion where you didn't even know what was happening. It is the most barbaric way to die. And this isn't something that was done in private. This is something that was done in a public space. And think about the kind of people who come to a public execution. Not exactly people full of compassion and mercy. These are wicked people, evil people, brutal people. The people who would say things that you couldn't even begin to imagine. And they're hollering, they're shouting, condemning, crucify him, insulting him, spitting on him, mocking him as he hangs there, as he suffocates. 
It would be so bad. It would be so painful. It would take so long. The whole goal was to make a human body experience as much torture and pain as human possible. It wanted to go slow and long and agonizing to see what a body could give. And once the body gave everything that it could, crucifixion won. And so at the bottom of the cross, there would oftentimes be a pool of feces and urine and sweat and blood and tears as the victim was crucified. This is agonizing. This is brutal. But did you know that before Jesus was crucified, he was scourged? There was this process called scourging where they would, they would have this post and you'd be chained to this post and you'd be on your hands and your knees and you, you would be whipped and beaten over and over and over again. Your back and your buttocks would be exposed and, and with a cat of nine tails, which is a piece of wood with nine leather strands coming off of it. And then on each leather strand, there would be rocks or shards of glass or nails. And the victim would be whipped and beaten over and over and over again. It would jar into the flesh and it would anchor down and then they would, the guard would rip it out, just causing flesh to go everywhere. And at the end of this beating, they took a robe and they put it around Jesus and they called him the King of the Jews. You know, most people wouldn't even survive scourging and, and make it to the cross, but Jesus survived. And so he got the reward of being mocked. They put a robe on his bloody, battered, open wounds and called him the king of the Jews. And then they took an, a crown of thorns and they shoved it in his head. And that wasn't just mockery. Doctors would tell us that a crown of thorns in your head would cause a rush of blood to your brain that would be the intensity of a hundred migraine headaches. You'd feel like your brain was going to explode. And after all of that, Jesus got the honor of taking his cross, this raw piece of timber on his broken and brutal back and carrying it up a hill called Golgotha. And he couldn't even make it there. Which I personally love that Jesus embraced such a deep level of humanity. He wanted to feel the human experience and all of its pain and all of its agony and all of its brutality to the point that he was unable, he was too frail to make it up Calvary. So somebody had to carry it for him. And he gets up there and he's nailed to a cross, nine inch nails driven through his wrists and through his ankles. And the cross is lifted up and set down into a hole, causing his body to shake and jar. And he hangs there. And he hangs there. And he looks out on all of his accusers, all of his enemies, all of his disciples who've abandoned him and he suffocates on his own blood. A doctor, the, right before the guards, they stab his side and water and blood rush out and doctors would tell us that that shows that he died of a collapsed heart. Literally, Jesus' heart broke. That's how he died. And he died that vicious, horrific, unhumane death for you and for me. Have you ever thought about that he could have come today? Like, why did he come to the earth at the point in time where capital punishment was the worst? Why didn't he come today when he could have just died of a lethal injection? Do you know why? Because the cross is a demonstration of his love, of his illogical, his ridiculous, his sacrificial, his committed, his unending love for you and for me. That he would do anything, go to any ends, give up all he has for us. I've got a little girl, Riley. I couldn't imagine her dying for the sins of anybody. 
But God allows his son Jesus to die for you and me. He just stands there, watches to demonstrate. He's crazy about you. And there is no length that he won't go to prove it to you. And then as Jesus suffocates on his own blood right before he says his last word, makes seven statements from the cross. He says, it is finished. Think about the power of the fact that it is finished. No more looking for love, it is finished. No more searching for significance, it is finished. No more for jostling for position, it is finished. No more fear of failure, no more walking in weakness, it's finished. No more living in doubts, no more drowning in demons, no more slavery to sin, it is finished. Everything that you've ever wanted and ever needed is finished in the cross of Christ for you and for me. This is the greatest news. This should create the deepest amount of gratitude. That's the ultimate perspective that I can offer for you to know what the cross of Jesus means, that he loves you and that he's demonstrated his love and the fact that he's died for you, brought you forgiveness, freedom, power, victory for you and for me, for all of life. How could we keep this news to ourselves? It is finished, so it's time to go and tell. We've got to spread this news to everyone, to anyone, to all who will listen. We've got to tell people that Jesus loves them, that Jesus has died for them, that Jesus has made a way for them. That is my responsibility and your responsibility. But before we do that, I want to close today by worshiping Jesus and singing hallelujah for the cross. And I just ask you, man, don't leave. I know I've gone long. I'm preaching today. Don't go get your kids yet. Have this moment with Jesus. Have this moment to connect to the power of the cross. Life, we get so caught up in its rhythms, so got caught up in our plans and our routines and where we've got to go and what we've got to do. But, but today, let's let the cross have the loudest word in our life. Let us hear and feel and experience that it is finished. Everything that we've wanted, everything that we've dreamed, everything that we were created for is finished in the cross of Christ. All our striving, all our trying, all our working, finished in Jesus. I wanna read for you my favorite picture of the cross. It's found in Isaiah 53. And then when I get done reading that, I want for us to sing that song, Hallelujah for the cross with more gratitude than we've ever sang it before. Isaiah 53, he was despised. He was rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. I invite you to stand, to sing, to celebrate in victory, the cross of Jesus this morning. Come on.